Dear Heavenly Father, our hearts are before You as they are at all times, but none more so, Father, than when we come before Your Word. For, Father, we know that we must come before You with our hearts clean, not by our power, but by Yours, by faith, Father. For without faith it is impossible to please You. And, Father, so we we place all our error before You, all our sin, all those things, those mistakes of life, the decisions we've made, the things we've done, and the things we should have but did not. All those things, Father, we, we lay before You continually, knowing that they are washed clean. But, but also knowing, Father, that we must continually, as You call us, repent and, and recognize our sin so that we may walk from it and not in it. Father, I thank You so much that the Word has that convicting power to change us in that way and that we would come to You and in an honest desire, Father, to grow like You by Your power in the Word. Father, that must ultimately be the reason we are gathered, not for the knowledge's sake itself, not for the chance simply to be in fellowship, though those things, Father, have benefit in their own way, but ultimately, Father, to be changed. We also ask, Father, that in the prayers and, and offers that we have lifted up in our hearts silently and, and otherwise, that You would be at work to do those things we ask, Father, if it be Your will, but Ultimately, Father, to do those things which bring you glory and to conform us to your will. Father, I also pray for uh, Jeremy and Galveston, a prayer of thanks and of recognition of your great work there, Father, to answer prayer and to bring him to a job as you promised to provide. You've done so faithfully there as well. And then, Father, for the word before us, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active in the hearts of all those who gathered here tonight. For in each of our hearts, Father, you have prepared a message, perhaps the one I would speak and perhaps not, perhaps a different one, but... Whatever it may be, Father, it will be the right message. And we pray, Father, that that work would ultimately change us so as to bring you glory and to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you all for, as I said, for being here tonight. We have a good deal left to do in this book. Luke 22 is where we're at. Hopefully, uh, we will come close to finishing that chapter tonight. We, we may leave a few verses for next week, but we will... Quickly move into 23 by next week. Let's go now, if you have your Bible, with me to chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke. We return to it tonight, really, on the doorstep of the crucifixion. For where we stand now in this narrative, within the hour, Jesus is going to be alone. All His friends, including the disciples, will have run away. They will have abandoned Him. And then the slandering will begin. And in less than three hours from where we find ourselves now in the text, the Jewish authorities will have tried him in a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges. And then the beatings with fists and clubs will begin. In less than six hours from now, Jesus is going to be standing before some of the most powerful men in all of Judea in his day, yet remain silent in the face of their accusations. And then the mockings will begin. In less than nine hours, Jesus is going to be brought before hostile crowds who call repeatedly for His death. The very same crowds, I might add, who not long before have been loving His teaching in the temple and have been awed by His miracles. And then the scourging will begin. And in less than 12 hours, Roman soldiers will drive the first nails through Jesus' body as He lays naked on a cross. And His agonizingly slow death will begin. And in less than 18 hours, Jesus will be dead and the mourning will begin. That's what we have left. 
plus his resurrection, which comes, as you know, at the end. But, but in the next 18 hours of his life, he'll experience things that hopefully you and I will never know. For it is because he experienced it that we shall not. It'll be an abrupt end to a brief earthly ministry for a man whose life and death ultimately have eternal significance for every man and woman who's ever lived. So as we begin the study tonight, the study of these 18 hours, which we won't finish tonight, of course, but we will certainly start. Let's, let's do what we can as a group to put aside all the images that may have formed in our mind in the past concerning the events of this moment. Whether those images may have come from books we've read about the last hours of Christ's life or perhaps from movies we've watched or, or even other studies we may have participated in, regardless of where they came from, let's free ourselves of those constraints because ultimately the true power of what happened, what we will study now in Luke in those 18 hours, isn't going to be found in the imagery of a Hollywood director's imagination or even in the words of a well-meaning Christian author. Ultimately, the, the power and the meaning of these next 18 hours is going to be found by what God will do in your heart and in mine as we study this Word and learn what it means for a God to take His own Son's life before He would take yours and mine. And so with that, let's return to Luke chapter 22. 22 verse 39 is where we left off. That's where we'll begin tonight. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Tonight's teaching opens with Jesus having left the upper room from where we heard and saw him conduct the Passover meal. And we're told he heads back to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is the place he's been staying all this week. We've studied this already. He would go into the city during the day, the city of Jerusalem. He would teach in the temple. He would leave at night. And he would sleep somewhere around Bethany or somewhere near this garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. And then we studied in the last chapter how after going out into the city or from the city one particular night, Wednesday night, he then sent the disciples back into the city looking for this man with the pitcher of water, and then that led them to the upper room, and eventually Jesus entered the city and attended the Passover meal with them. So on this one night, this Wednesday night, he's left, come back in, had the Passover meal, and now he's leaving again. Now he's coming back out for that last time. The last time he will leave the city by his own power. This is an important detail, and I want to tell you why. Jesus knows from what happened in the upper room, that his betrayer, Judas, is busy somewhere arranging for his capture. Remember, Judas was dismissed from the meal specifically for that purpose. And he knows that Jesus, Jesus knows that Judas can only lead the authorities to him if he goes to places that Judas knows he's frequenting. I mean, it could very well have been that Judas' first place to take the authorities was that upper room. After all, that was the last place he saw Jesus. 
Now, whether he did that or not, if he had, and then not finding Jesus there, the only other place he would have known to go at that point would have been to go to the place Jesus had customarily been sleeping at night, to the Mount of Olives. So, where you see Jesus go now is exactly the place where he expects Judas to come find him, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to this Mount of Olives, the normal place he's been going. By the way, Gethsemane, as many of you probably know, means oil press, for that was the purpose of the garden. has a double entendre about it, though, doesn't it? The process of being tested, of tried, of pressing under heavy weight. The point in all this, of course, is obvious. Jesus is not trying to evade Judas. He's not trying to evade capture, though he certainly could have. I mean, he had every opportunity He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew what Judas was up to. So there's no lack of opportunity for Christ to avoid the circumstances of this week. In fact, it's really a silly thing to even consider him doing that at this point, given that the fact is he's walked all the way to Jerusalem over the last several months, all the while saying, I'm going there to die. But it is important to note that even in this last moment, as the pressure is building, he goes out of his way to be available for what he knows is about to happen. He's cooperating, in other words, not with Judas, but with his father's plan, with his father's will. So as they arrive at the mount, Jesus tells his disciples to pray to avoid falling into temptation. I don't know how you see this, but I've often read that verse and come away feeling like that was a bit odd. And, And odd in this way. In the midst of all that was going on in the moment, and all that must have been going on in Jesus' mind in that moment, knowing all that was about to happen, knowing that his betrayal was just moments away, hours away, He tells the disciples, pray to avoid falling into temptation. What kind of temptation? That's what really bothered me, I guess, is exactly what's he worried about them doing? What what is the temptation of this moment? Well, in a sense, it's exactly the same kind of temptation that Jesus himself goes off to pray about. Because as we just read, at the same time he tells the disciples to pray, he goes off a stone's throw, we're told, a few hundred feet maybe, and begins to pray likewise, to pray very earnestly, to pray that the Father would be willing to remove the cup of suffering that Jesus knew he was about to experience. This image of a cup, by the way, it's it's very common in Scripture to use a cup as a picture of judgment, as holding something of judgment. The idea that judgment itself is something that can be poured out of a bowl or a cup. You know, you see this, for example, in the book of Revelation where you have the bowl judgments, God's wrath being poured out of those bowls. You also see, for example, later in that same book, the book of Revelation, you hear of Great Babylon ultimately getting its just desserts. And the way it's uh, described in Scripture is, the Great Babylon receives the cup of wine of God's wrath. Jeremiah is an example out of the Old Testament. He talks about the nations of the world drinking out of the cup of wine of God's wrath when they come against Israel. So there's a common picture in Scripture. This cup that Jesus is asking the Father to take from him is literally a picture of God's wrath. His wrath and judgment against sin. And Christ, knowing that he is about to drink of this very same cup, he asks the Father if he'd be willing to remove it. This cup of judgment, by the way, is the cup due you and I. That's what he's doing. I don't mean this metaphorically. I don't mean this symbolically. I mean this literally. What Jesus is prepared to do in all the events of leading up to the crucifixion, to the death itself, to being in the grave even, all of that experience is God's wrath poured out in judgment for sin, but not for His sin, as you know Scripture teaches, but for the sin that was placed upon Him, that being yours and my sin. 
And in the judgment he received, he received what was due to us. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment, if you consider what it means that Jesus experienced that. I want you to think about your own life. As much as you can be honest with yourself about where you have sinned and where you perhaps have sinned even in the last day, and maybe project forward into the end of your life, how much wrath and judgment is due, you and I, for what we have done individually in our lives for sin. Now multiply that by the number of people who will be saved by faith, who likewise have a lifetime of sin due judgment. Put all of that for all of time, going back from Adam forward, assuming, as I think we can out of Scripture, that Adam was saved by faith after his fall, and go forward to the last days of the tribulation. For that matter, into the messianic reign, which includes unbelievers coming to faith even in those days. Put all of that into a moment of time, because that's what God did. What God did was look back and look forward, looked at all of time for all of human history, for all those who would be saved, for all who were due that judgment, and rather than reserving that wrath for their own judgment day, he brought it out and put it on his son for that moment. And then, if you can possibly imagine what it would be like to be holy and just and without sin yourself, as Jesus was, imagine the moment when all of that came upon him. And the dread that must have been in in his mind and in his heart, now knowing that that was coming. Kind of seeing it in advance. That's what he's experiencing here. That's the agony of this moment. It's an unbearable expectation. And yet Jesus knew this was his Father's plan for the redemption of the world. That's why he adds this phrase in the prayer that he spoke in the Greek, it's the phrase, if you are willing, if it be your will. If you're willing, God, your will above mine, but would you take this cup from me? Isn't that how our prayer is to be as well? That's really the Father's prayer, right? That's the Our Father. As you've learned it, I'm sure, having read it many times, having spoken it many times, when we pray that prayer, we're reminded that it's not our will, but the Father's will that we are to pray for. Christ doing the same thing even now, showing that even now in the way He expressed His prayer. Can there be any doubt that He was truly a man? God, yes, but also man, in true form, fully a man in all respects, he's feeling the anxiety of his coming, coming suffering. He felt this instinctive desire to run away, to, to stop the process, to say no to God's will for his life, which is the experience you and I have shared. You know, he probably had in his stomach that same sinking feeling that we've all had at some point in time when we're facing something very unpleasant. When, when, when you've been called into the principal's office and you know why. Or your boss's office. Or when you've let down a friend or a spouse. Or when you've, when you've made a big mistake you can't recover from. You know, all these experiences of life that in the moment we first experience them, there's that feeling in us that we just want to run from it. But we can't do anything about it. We have to suffer through it, at least until it's, it's over, whatever over is. He's experiencing that, but on a level you and I could never imagine. Luke, the doctor here, as he observes this scene, he even adds to the, to the details of this scene the fact that Jesus' nervousness and his anxiety and his fear had driven him to the point where his sweat was so profuse that it was like drops of blood, he says. Like drops of blood. Medically, it is possible for us to reach the point where blood actually leaves the body through a, a condition called hemiohydrosis. And what it really means is that in the skin where sweat glands exist, the stress on the body in its attempt to produce sweat goes to the point where very small capillaries in the sweat gland begin to burst. 
So blood actually mixes with the sweat, which is why Luke says it the way he does. He says, like drops of blood, because medically that's a very precise way to put it. He wasn't literally sweating pure blood. You, you wouldn't do that unless you had a cut in your, in your body. He is sweating, but the sweat is like a drop of blood in that it's tainted red. It's colored red by the presence of some blood from his capillaries. It, it gives you a sign of just how stressful the situation was for him. Remember, this is early spring in Judea. Uh, it's a cold night. Later in the same chapter, in verse 55, we're going to see that there's a fire kindled at the house of the chief priest while they're waiting outside as Jesus goes through the trial. It's cold enough to need a fire at night. And Jesus is sweating so profusely, it's producing blood. It's a cold sweat. It's a sweat produced not by the need to cool the body, but because of the stress of the moment. Uh, Dr. Dave Miller puts it this way. He says, from these factors, it is evident that even before Jesus endured the torture of the cross, he suffered far beyond what most of us will ever suffer. His penetrating awareness of the heinous nature of sin, its destructive and deadly effects, the sorrow and the heartache that it inflicts, the extreme measure necessary to deal with it, make the passion of Christ beyond all comprehension. I think some of us focus down very quickly, and, and for obvious reasons, I know, we focus down to the point of the crucifixion itself, or maybe the scourging, or maybe you know, any of those aspects of that night really capture our attention, because we can appreciate the, just how excruciating that physical pain must have been. After all, the, the word for excruciating comes from a Latin root, from which we get the same word crucifixion, by the way. But we forget that for Christ, the true pain perhaps even more than the physical pain. The true pain of this moment was that a man who knew no sin, who was God and perfect in all respects, was made to feel the weight of the sin of the world and then judged by it, judged over it, to feel the wrath of God for it. How could we imagine that? We never will have to imagine that. We'll never have to experience that. Amen. What kind of temptation does someone face in these circumstances? What kind of temptation is Jesus himself praying for strength in the face of? What kind of temptation is he worried that the disciples might experience then? The temptation to avoid the persecution that is set before him. To stand in the face of this coming persecution and not run. Not stop it. That's what he's worried about. That's the temptation he's trying to avoid. More importantly, perhaps, than anything I've said so far, it is the temptation to go against God's will. Because that's what running would have meant. That's what avoiding the crucifixion would have meant. Denying God's will for him. Disobeying God's will. He obviously desired to, dis to, to avoid the cross. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? He's a man. That's, I think, the key issue here. Is He is man. He is God in flesh. And as a man, he had to experience life as you and I would experience it, but without sin. Which means he had to experience the temptations that come with a moment like this. Paul says in Philippians 2.8, He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Here's that issue of obedience to God's will. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians 2.8. That the true obedience of Christ is measured, perhaps more than anything else he did in his life, by the fact that at this moment, under all of this stress, feeling that temptation that you and I would experience as well, to flee, he didn't. And not because he was constrained by some external force, but because of his own desire to obey God's will in the moment. That's what left him there. That's what put his hands on the cross. 
even in that fact, or even in that experience, Jesus turns to his disciples, I believe, in how he expressed that demand to pray. He's turning to them so that he can teach them how to sustain themselves in the same way during that same kind of temptation. Because they're going to have, not just in this immediate moment, a temptation to flee, but that temptation is going to carry forward into the lives they're going to lead as the early leaders of the church, ultimately most of them martyred. So each of them in their own way is going to face a moment in the future very similar to the one Christ is facing right now. Very similar. Where many of them will die, in some cases, by crucifixion or by things just as bad. And they'll know it's coming. And they'll probably have an easy way to avoid it, won't they? Deny Christ. Declare Caesar as Lord. Repudiate your faith. And all of this goes away. That's the, the fundamental truth of, the Christian of, the, of, of what a persecuted Christian faced in their day. He demands that they pray. And yet, as we see in the text I already read, they're neglectful even in that simple request. You know, for each of us, it's not necessarily the case that we'll experience what the disciples experience. Certainly none of us hope for that. But God has a plan for each of us to His own glory. And that plan, it may include a long, peaceful life lived as a testimony of the peace we have in the Lord. And we certainly pray for that, I assume. But don't lose sight of the other possibility. The other possibility is that God's plan would instead be for our life that we would experience hardship, we would experience disappointments, we would experience perhaps suffering, we might experience persecution. And for some of us, we may even experience a violent end to our life. That could be God's plan. And if that's His plan, then it is self-evident that by that plan, He would demonstrate His glory to the world through our witness in the form of our forgiveness of those who persecute us, or through our hopeful praise of God even in the midst of those trials, or that God may receive glory in the eyes of men because of our steadfastness to Him in, in, in despite, despite all that would happen to us. You see, He can receive glory both from what we experience in the positive aspects of our life, but in many cases, His glory is magnified even greater by how we respond to the negative aspects of life. God can direct our lives any way He wishes, and any way he chooses for the sake of his glory. And one way is as good as another. That is why we are called slaves to Christ. That's why Paul says, I die to Christ now. He says, it doesn't matter whether I live to Christ or die to Christ, either way I'm to Christ. Philippians 2.17, he says, But even if I be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. It's a Paul's way of thinking, and really for us as well, we don't count the joy in our life by how peaceful God lets us lead that life. It's really a matter of how much our life can be used to magnify His glory. And if He can magnify His own glory in greater terms because of how He would put us through persecution, then that is as much our desire as it should be, or should be as much our desire as His. Rather than to live a life of peaceful irrelevance, setting aside somewhere, shuffled off in a corner for 70 years, doing nothing. We may be happier, but is God's glory greater? Which one should we seek? Now, that is not to say we go out and intentionally put ourselves in harm's way, thinking that somehow we have gained glory for God. I hope you all would see the difference in that. But by the same token, are we willing to stand in the midst of persecution or in the midst of suffering, whatever form it takes, and drink from the cup if we know it's God's will? That's the prayer that he's asking these disciples to be prepared to pray. A prayer to avoid the temptation of walking away from the bad things in life where, where we know it to be God's will, simply because it doesn't feed our flesh. It doesn't make us feel good, in other words. It doesn't make us comfortable. 
And so we look through the rest of this chapter. I want you to study it with me as we continue to go through it with this little thought in mind, kind of in the back of your head. I want you to look at the example Jesus is setting here. From now all the way through his crucifixion, the example of how to face persecution when you know that it is God's will that you would endure such a trial. What are the things you do in the light of that kind of a, of a circumstance in your life? And remember, persecution doesn't always come in the form of crucifixion on a cross. I mean, today it could come in the form of, a, of losing your job maybe over your faith or maybe losing a family member's love or, or, com, or companionship. Or, you know, there's a many, many ways that the enemy can put pressure on us. But in every one of those cases, what are we doing so that God's will is magnified by our response? Pray for the test to be removed, but only if it's God's will. And if it be His will that the trial come nonetheless, then pray to avoid the temptation to step out of it. Pray that God would remove that temptation to avoid it. To avoid the trial. Pray knowing that His will is being met even in your suffering and that His glory and your reward will be great. You might remember the words he gave to the church at Smyrna as, he, uh, as they recorded in the book of Revelation, a church that underwent, uh, underwent a lot of suffering because of persecution. He said this to those in that church in Revelation 2, verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. One of the most fascinating things about that verse to me is he never turns around and says, I'll preserve you from the death. He never says, don't worry, I'll keep you from the persecution. He just says, get ready for it. Pray to make it through. And when you come out the, the other side, there's a reward waiting for you. Not the reward of salvation. I hope you don't read that into the text. It's talking about the eternal rewards God is prepared to offer those who are faithful in what he gives us to do here and now. One of the things he may choose to give us as our task in life is to die the right way to suffer under the right circumstances. All right, back to Luke, chapter 22. Let's go to verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike them with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So we reach the moment of the betrayal. Jesus is in this garden. He's been praying. And then we hear... Judas entering with this crowd, Luke says. Now, in studying Luke, we would miss a few uh, interesting details about the moment here, about the events of this moment, because as has been the case all along, different gospel writers capture different aspects of the scene. And there are some important details of this moment that Luke doesn't capture, but the other gospel writers do. For example, we learn in Matthew's gospel, where he records this same scene, that the crowd is armed with clubs and with swords. And then as we look at John's Gospel, we learn that the group also had torches and lanterns and that it included officers from the chief priest. And John also specifically mentions that there was a Roman cohort assigned to, to sort of follow this crowd and follow Judas and sort of, they're like backup. Like they called for backup and then the Roman cohort comes in. Now what a cohort was, literally in Roman military terms, a cohort was a group of about 600 soldiers. Now, it seems unlikely 
that an entire cohort of soldiers is in the mix in this moment. I mean, it, it is not to say it's impossible that there were truly 600 soldiers here, but it may just be that the term is being used loosely here to reference a group of soldiers, probably a large group, but it doesn't have to necessarily be 600. I'll give you an example. In today's thinking, you might say there's a squad of military guys or a squad of soldiers. Well, that term has a very literal meaning to somebody who's in the army. That defines a certain size of men. But you and I would use it kind of in a loose way, not necessarily knowing how many men it meant, it's meant to refer to. It could very well be the case that Luke's using it that way here. But I don't want to rule out the possibility that in this time of Passover, when there was so much tension in the city, millions of pilgrims in the city, much more than normal, it's a traditional time of year when the Jewish nation would sometimes disrupt the peace of the city. It's not unusual for the Romans to kind of go overboard to keep the peace. So I don't want to rule out the possibility that you truly have 600 soldiers following this civilian crowd with torches and with swords and with clubs. I get the picture in my mind of this angry mob from one of the movies, you know, the, the angry villagers kind of movie. That's the scene of this. That's what's coming into this garden. And as they approach, Jesus, or John tells us, in fact, in his gospel, that Jesus begins the conversation by asking them who they're looking for. And when they, ask, when they respond by saying, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says, I am he, to that comment. And at the very moment he speaks those words, we're told that the entire group, now here we are looking at potentially hundreds of people, the entire group drew back, John says, and fell to the ground. Now, why they reacted that way, man, we can't be exactly sure, but I think the obvious conclusion is the power of God present, manifest in God, in his own son, had the effect supernaturally of putting them on their backs as he spoke those words. I am he, kind of reminiscent of how God spoke to Moses, isn't it? I am who I am. And as he responds in that moment, these men fall back. Now, we know by the end of the story, they must have stood back up because they still arrest him. But it seems to me that there's this clear statement being made even in that moment that though God was not determined to stop them because they served his purpose in how he was trying to orchestrate the events of that time, nevertheless, God was making it known through that moment that nothing that was about to happen was happening outside his will and outside his purpose, but in fact was according to his will and purpose. That, in other words, had it been his purpose to stop them, he certainly could have. And John's Gospel captures that detail for us. Going back to Luke, we hear that Judas had intended to kiss Jesus. Judas had obviously arranged this sign beforehand so that he could point out who Jesus was in a, in a somewhat obscure, somewhat sleight-of-hand way, in a way that didn't overtly require that he name him to the crowd. Do you ever under, stop to ask why he did that? Why there was a sign at all? Really? This is in part, at least in part, a result of the Roman legal proceedings of that day. Before an arrest could happen, and I mentioned this, I think, a few weeks ago when we started talking about what was coming in these chapters, I mentioned that before arrest could occur under Roman law, there would have to have been an indictment. Now, understand, the, the Romans are not coming to arrest Jesus necessarily in this circumstance. The, the, the arrest is being perpetuated, it's being initiated by the Jewish authorities. And there was a Jewish structure of authority in the culture. Jewish leadership, Jewish rules, Jewish law, Jewish trials, Jewish judges. There was a process of judicial oversight carried out within Jewish culture, but all of it fell underneath the umbrella of Roman authority. 
Because as the conquering force in Judea, Rome held the ultimate power of the land. But they had agreed to allow the Jewish culture to maintain their own system of civil law, really religious law as we would see it, underneath the Roman law. And they did it largely as a peacekeeping measure to kind of keep the Jews content. But the Jews understood how the process worked. They could only go so far in adjudicating their own law before they would bump up against Roman law. And where they hit that limit, they then had to appeal to Rome to carry out the rest of the process for them. So while they could convict Jesus under their law, they couldn't put him to death. That was something that only Rome had the power to do. So ultimately, as they go through their own process, they have to have the backing of Rome. If Rome didn't want them to arrest Jesus, they weren't going to be able to. If Rome didn't want them to try Jesus or to convict him or to put him on a cross, none of it would have happened unless the Romans were willing to go forward with it. And so in this moment, the fact that there is a Roman contingent moving along with this group, coming to assist in the arrest of Jesus, tells us some things about what must have happened up to this point. The only reason the Romans would have been there is if they had had convincing evidence to tell them that Jesus was worthy of, of an arrest. And under Roman law, that took the form of an indictment, just as it does in our day today. An indictment could only be handed down by the governor. And the governor would only hand down an indictment if there was some kind of evidence to support it. And the best kind of evidence in their day, no different than our own, is an eyewitness or some testifying witness. So we know from all of that that unless they had had an indictment, they couldn't have been there. And unless they had had a witness or some testimony against Jesus, they wouldn't have got the indictment. And therefore, we know that Judas must, when he left the Passover meal, must, one of the things he must have done is gone to Roman authorities, probably the governor himself, and testified in some respect about what Jesus was saying or doing, sufficient to get the Romans concerned and participate in this arrest. And all of that could have happened easily. We're talking here about a city that's relatively small, easy to move around in quickly. Rome would have been on alert for any kind of trouble. They would have been anxious to hear from anyone who said, I think I know someone who's trying to stir up trouble. All of this would have been very easy to see happening in a short period of time under the circumstances. So we know that at this point, Judas has become Jesus' accuser, not just spiritually in the garden, if you will, but legally in a court of law to satisfy Rome's concerns. And just like in any court proceeding today, the same would have been true in that day. The witness must point out the accused. You know, that scene in a, a trial where the witness stands up in the, in, the, in the witness stand and points to the accused and says, He's the one who did it. Judge, that's the man. It's sort of like that, where Judas now has to officially, to to satisfy the Roman authorities, he has to officially identify the person he has claimed is the the reactionary, the one who is causing disruption in the city. And so he's going to do it with a kiss. That's going to be his official means of doing it. Now, it was very common, by the way, in that day, for a disciple of a rabbi to greet his rabbi with a kiss on the hand. So it's probably the case that he's using this symbol because it would have been a normal way to greet Jesus in any event. Not necessarily a kiss on the cheek, more usually a kiss on the hand. How ironic, by the way, that Judas would use a gesture intended to show love and honor in order to accomplish an act of hatred and betrayal. Remember, at this very moment, as this scene is playing out, this man, Judas, who's standing before Christ, he's being indwelt by Satan. Not by one of Satan's minions, but by the prince of the power of darkness by the one who, more than any other, is standing opposed to God and to Christ specifically. And in this rare moment, you have Satan working to kiss the hand of Christ, but to do it in a completely duplicitous way. 
with the intent to turn him in, to kill him. Uh, I must wonder how the spiritual realm would have shuddered at that moment. But then the scene gets even more bizarre, if that's even possible at this point. The disciples are still trying to figure out, I think, what Jesus must have meant by his earlier comments in the upper room about needing to have swords now. So it's sort of primed for the sword thing. Where does the sword come in? Is this the moment, Jesus? Now, now the sword? You know, that's obviously what they're thinking. They make that comment. So they say, is this the time to use it? And before anyone gets an answer, one of the disciples, we're told, takes out a sword and swings it at the crowd, I guess, and ends up cutting off the ear of the slave of the high priest. John tells us in his gospel who this guy is. I'll give you one guess. Peter. I think we could have guessed that even if we hadn't been told it was Peter, right? Not to pick on the man, but you know, it doesn't surprise us very much to hear that Peter is the first one to think to start swinging the sword around. It's actually a pretty pathetic display when you think about it from this perspective. Do you think Peter was aiming for the ear of the slave of the high priest? I mean, should we assume that Peter carefully calculated in his mind that in this moment... The very best way that I can defend Jesus is to surgically remove the right ear of the slave of the high priest. No. So what does it mean? Have you, by the way, the word here for sword in the Greek means machete. So I want you to think of very Eastern style knife, the kind that has the very long curved blade, very big handle. And what you should understand about that is this is not an easy sword to maneuver or to handle. I mean, it's hard enough to hold a big, normal, kind of what I would call a normal Western-style long sword. They're very heavy. If you've ever picked one up, it's not like you just kind of you know, fling it around in your hand. It's a, it takes two hands, usually. You all see uh, Braveheart? Okay, it's that kind of, a, kind of a sword. Well, the machete is not quite so heavy, but it's, it's harder to work with because it's got this big blade that kind of curves back on you. So you don't thrust it so much as you slash with it. So what I assume must have happened here, remember Peter being a fisherman, not a soldier, by trade, he, what he did here was the equivalent of, of someone who's never fired a gun, pointing a pistol and shooting himself in his own foot. It's that kind of an example where he's, he's probably you know, so uncomfortable holding this thing, doesn't know what to do, he just kind of throws it up in the air at whoever's in front of him and he, he misses his target by a mile. In fact, I, I wonder if Jesus isn't telling him to put it away because he's afraid Peter might cut him along with half, you know, half the disciples at this point. It's just a sign of how pathetic the whole scene was that he ends up doing nothing more than taking off an ear. A very famous theologian by the name of Wearsby said this about Peter. I just love the way he puts this. He says, Peter had been sleeping when he should have been praying, talking when he should have been listening, boasting when he should have been fearing. Now he was fighting when he should have been surrendering. It's, it's good intentions, but he always picks the wrong thing to do, doesn't he? It took him a while to get over that. And as we read, Jesus then heals the man's ear, which, you know, in a moment of passing, just shows this amazing compassion that Jesus had. You know, even in this moment, as he's about to be arrested and taken into to trial and all that follows, you know, he's still compassionate for his accusers. Though I'm sure that this slave that arrived that night had no particular interest in the dispute, probably didn't even really know what was going on. I'll bet you he left with a very different impression of the man of Jesus. Finally, Jesus asks an obvious if rhetorical question of the crowd. He says, why did you bring such a big mob? Why the tor- you know, I kind of read into this. Why the torches? Why the clubs? Why the swords? Why did you go to so much effort? You know, you've you got to think through this scene for a moment. You've got hundreds, dozens if not hundreds of Roman soldiers. You've got angry villagers, as I said, with torches and clubs and swords. You've got the officers of the chief priests. As Luke puts it, you may also have the chief priests there. You have all this 
group, this, this gaggle, marching in at night with the torches. Can you imagine darkness, but these torches and all that goes with it? Marching into what it was an otherwise peaceful garden scene with Jesus praying. And, you know, the whole thing would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. They all march into this moment, and the question Jesus is asking them is, what, what's propelling you to do this? It's rhetorical because he knows they can't answer it, even if they wanted to. But he's asking, what's propelling you to do this? Where does all this anger come from? What's your motivation to do this right now? You know, I was in the temple, freely available to you every day this week. You never came and did this then. What's changed, in other words? Why the big hubbub here? And and why do you feel the need to come with so much force against me? Why do you come with such overwhelming force against a man who never did anything more than preach forgiveness and the love for God? Jesus provides the answer in verse 53. He says, This is a battle being waged in the spiritual realm. And the people in this moment, they're merely chess pieces moving on the board of human history. But unlike a true chess game where each side sort of starts with the same pieces and they all have essentially equal opportunity to win the game, in this particular battle, the one that's waging in this garden in the moment, the enemy only has pawns. And the Lord has an unlimited number of queens and bishops and knights And he has a king who will never fall. So, under these circumstances, the only way the enemy can take any peace off the board, if you will, can have a victory, in a sense, I guess, over Christ, is if God permits it. Is if the Father permits him to have that power over his Son. And that's why Jesus says, this time is yours. This time. The emphasis there is on this time is yours. It's your time now. Enjoy it while you can is sort of the implication I would take to that. And he particularly attributes it to the power of darkness. This is the time that God himself had set aside for the power of darkness to have a limited opportunity to win, if you will, in a relative sense, win, in a very limited sense, win, this battle that is ever raging in the spiritual realm. I want you to know that God had not just planned it, but he had told us it was coming. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, I'll read you two verses. This is at the moment as God judges the sin of, God, of Adam and, and woman in the garden. He pronounces curse, and part of the curse is against the serpent. And this is what he says. God said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, it's a somewhat enigmatic kind of verse. When we've studied it, as I've taught Genesis to some of you, and if you are interested, it's certainly available on the website as always. But it's a very powerful set of verses and it explains what's going on in this moment. In fact, it is being fulfilled, at least in part, by what's going on now in the Garden of Gethsemane. The promise that he made there to mankind in that moment in chapter 3 of Genesis was this. God said that the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent would contend with one another. Enmity would exist. Now, the first thing you note here is that women, strictly speaking, don't have seed. The biblical sense of seed here is in the, the sense of the man's ability to procreate. The male seed is what's being spoken of here. Not the sense of the egg that a woman carries. We're talking about the male part of birth, the male part of procreation. But we know physically that doesn't exist. So what he's saying here is in reference to the fact that the, the offspring of woman 
who comes without the need for man's sperm, which we know is a virgin birth, which we know to be only one in all of history, Christ Himself. So the only time there's ever been in history the seed of woman is in Christ's birth. Every other human that's ever been born on earth can trace their birth to the seed of a man. And that is the phrase, seed of woman. The seed of woman here then is a reference to Christ, the coming Messiah. That there would be a coming Messiah, born of a virgin, and with that Messiah there would be a contention between that seed and the seed of the serpent. Now the seed of the serpent here, coming out of the Bible clearly as it's given in Revelation 20 verse 2, for example, refers to Satan. Refers to Satan specifically. Now, what do we learn about these two individuals from those verses in Genesis? We learn then that the serpent will have the power, we're told, to bruise the seed of woman on the heel. But the seed of woman will have the ability or have the power to strike the head of the serpent. Where you learn the difference is in that last word, head versus heel. On the one hand, it's one thing to be struck on your heel. Really, no matter how hard I hit you on your heel, I probably can't kill you. I mean, it would take a pretty amazingly strong blow to your heel to result in a fatal blow. On the other hand, how hard do I have to hit you on the head? Not very hard. The imagery is intentional. While on the one hand, the seed of the serpent gets an opportunity to take a blow against the seed of woman, it's a glancing blow. It has some limited ability to create damage, but nothing like what can happen in reverse when that seed of woman gets the opportunity to strike the head of the seed of the serpent. What we're talking about here is the ultimate spiritual battle that has existed since the garden and continues today and will continue until the serpent, until Satan himself is judged in the lake of fire. Until that day comes, the spiritual battle reigns. And as it exists now, as it existed in that garden, the enemy is working through the pawns that he has available ultimately to strike at Christ. And this is the hour that God has set aside for that opportunity. This is the time when the serpent will have their lim his limited opportunity to strike down Christ. What's really ironic, what's really amazing here about how God's plan works out is to consider that even in the fact that God opens this window to Satan for just a short time, and of course Satan charges right through it, in his charging through it, in his striking at Christ, in his fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, what is he actually doing? He's creating his own death sentence. He's ultimately serving God's purpose. The greatest irony, the great irony of the Bible is that even as the enemy goes about doing what he will to do, God and how he controls and orchestrates it by his sovereignty ensures that even in Satan's activity, God's will is met, ultimately met. And in this particular moment in the garden, it is, a met, it is met for all eternity for the purposes God has in saving mankind. Because by Christ's death, you and I are saved. It's an amazing story that shows you, though, that, that though Satan is powerful, he is not so powerful as to even understand God's plan to use him to his own demise. God is sovereign. Wiersbe said that all men face a similar decision like the moment here in the garden. Wiersbe said that in the face of God's plan for salvation of mankind, all men must choose either to go through life pretending, like Judas did, to go through life fighting, like Peter did, or to go through life submitting to God's will, as Jesus did. That's the choices you have in light of the spiritual battle that is waging around you. Luke twenty-two fifty-four. 
Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As they're leading Jesus away out of the garden, Mark's Gospel actually tells us that all the disciples fled in that moment. Luke doesn't mention that, but I want you to understand that at the moment that that seizure takes place and they're binding him and they're dragging him off and and who knows what else was going on around him in that moment, the disciples all run away. Not a one of them follows. Mark's Gospel includes this, this kind of cute little anecdote about how there was one other young man who started to follow, but when they saw him and tried to seize him, they grabbed his cloak and ripped it off him and he ran away naked. Most commentators believe that was Mark talking about himself. Though Mark was not one of the twelve, he had attached himself to Jesus by that time and he alone sought to follow a little bit, but even he ran away when he was seized. Luke tells us that Peter, at least Peter, had the decency to follow along at a distance at some point. Eventually Peter comes back and catches up with the crowd and makes his way all the way to the home of the high priest. But of course he's hoping not to be spotted, certainly not to be identified and it's understandable. I, I know it's easy to look down on Peter and all the disciples even in the, in the story, but I want you to understand they had real reason to fear. They had real reason to be concerned. When a teacher like Jesus, in this case, is accused of treason or under the Jewish law of blasphemy, which is what he's going to be accused with, then his students could easily be charged with the same offense unless they were willing to repudiate the teaching of that rabbi, unless they were willing to deny him, basically. As long as they held to him as a disciple, then they could easily get caught up in the same charge and and face the same fate. They were going to be under similar suspicion at the very least. So when Jesus is at the house here of the chief priest and, and Peter is recognized in the court as they all wait kind of outside as the events take place in the home, he has real reason to be afraid. In fact, you might actually be willing to give the man a little credit for being there. In fact, you might consider for yourself whether you'd be there. You know, it's so hard to put yourself in that moment if you can't really appreciate what the culture was like, what the circumstances was like. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe in a city you're not familiar with, maybe in your own city for that matter, at night, maybe in a side of town you've never been in before, maybe in circumstances where suddenly a crowd develops in the street, something happens around you you didn't expect and you kind of sense things are getting out of control and you're not really sure what to do next or where to go. Sometimes you see that after a sporting event out in the street or you know, a big party at a holiday event or something goes wrong and the crowd gets a little out of control. It's that sense that you ought to take now to a whole new level. Put yourself in a sitting where people know you and you have real reason to be concerned. It changes the feeling considerably. And would you stay in there or would you flee? All the disciples but John and Peter fled. The other thing I think is interesting as we close tonight, look at how Jesus was able to see Peter. And I say it this way because I think the impression you might be left with is a home like the home you live in today, 
where once you go inside, you wouldn't know if there's somebody sitting in front of your house or not. For most of us, that's true. Not in the homes of the Palestinian region in this day. There was no glass in the windows. The doors were usually left open to allow a breeze through. People wandered in and out of homes without much concern. It wasn't a sense of private property where you wouldn't go through a gate without asking. No, there would have been a crowd in, around, on top of, anywhere near that house. And as the events take place, they're, they're taking place in a way so that the crowd can hear it because that's, after all, why the crowd's there. They're interested in the proceedings. So it's very easy to see that Jesus would have heard what Peter's saying. That Very likely the case was that every word Peter spoke, Jesus heard it, even as he was saying it. And then in the last one, as Jesus' prophecy of Peter is fulfilled, he catches Peter's eye. How that must have felt for Peter in the moment. Maybe even to consider what it must have felt like for Jesus. I think sometimes we tend to minimize the emotional impact these events had on Christ. Maybe because we know He was God and man. Maybe because we knew He expected them to happen, therefore He wasn't surprised by them. I don't know quite why we feel that way, but He was a real man with real friends who He had real love for, facing a very, very difficult situation. And just like you and I would have been in that same situation, how would it feel to see your friends abandon you under those circumstances? And then to deny you three times. What a difficult moment. The trial of Jesus at the hands of, the, of these religious leaders finishes this chapter and it's then going to be followed in the next chapter by the civil trial. We're not going to go into that tonight, but next week when we come back, what we're going to begin to do is really piece apart what happens in this trial process. I want you to begin to see the complexity of it because you may not appreciate just how complex it became. Keeping in mind that you had Jewish law and Jewish authority underneath Roman law and Roman authority. And then add to that this fact. In the day Christ died, there were two high priests. One who had it by right of birth, who was the high priest basically, whose family had had the position of high priest when the Romans rolled into town decades earlier. That man had refused to bow to Caesar, so he had been deposed. And what had happened after that was that Others within his family had been placed in the role of high priest by the Roman authorities as sort of puppets to support their rule. Well, the Jews in the day still saw the original man as high priest. They did not recognize the high priesthood of this new surrogate. But the surrogate still reigned. So there are actually three trials. There's a trial at the home of the first high priest. There's a trial at the home of the second high priest, followed by the trial before Pontius Pilate. So we will cover all of that as we look through the trials, starting with the last few verses of chapter 22 and then moving, of course, into chapter 23 next week. So I hope you can join us for that. Dear Father, we are mindful as we've studied tonight on just how terrible it must have been for Christ, our Lord, a man who knew no sin, to be placed in the position you placed him. To not only, Father, be destined to suffer on our behalf, but to know it even before it happened, to see it coming, Father, to face it with all the fears and and emotions of a man, to know what it would mean, and yet, Father, not to walk away from it. Could we ever know that kind of courage and and obedience? Could we ever fully appreciate, Father, the, the moment and the experience that Jesus had? We praise You, Father, that we will never know that moment. We praise You, Father, and give You the glory for the grace and the mercy that You have seen fit to bestow upon us so that rather than suffering and mocking and beating and death, the spiritual death we are due, 
Instead of all of that, Father, what we may suffer in this life were to include even beatings and, and persecution. None of it, Father, will be as Christ felt it. None of it will be with the shame of sin. Father, it will all come with the knowledge that we are clean before You by Christ's blood. And therefore, Father, that when death comes, however it comes, we will be in Your presence. With a joy like that, Father, what can this world bring us to cause us to have concern? Father, what can this world do to us that could cause us to suffer truly? For our joy, Father, is complete in the Lord and it will be eternal and we may experience it even now as we look forward to that day in Your presence. Thank You, Father, to remind us of that in Your Word. Bring us back here next week, Father, we pray, as it would be Your will, for we desire truly to learn more about how Your Son, Father, faced that time and to fully appreciate what He did on our behalf. May we come to know it so that we, we, we may come to live it out and to teach it to others. We thank You, Father, for the provisions You've made in this night through this room and the food and for all that many have done to make this night possible. Give us safe travel home, Father, and bring us back next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.